Hey everyone, it's Nally here. How are you doing? This podcast was recorded in the council area known as Darabin in Melbourne. I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the Wurundjeri people and their elders past, present and emerging. Now for live shows, please go to nellythomas.com, follow the links. We just did another one at the Malthouse Theatre and oh, it was bloody fabulous. We've got more coming later in the year. Uh, of course, if you want a particular guest for a live show, do let me know. I'm always open to ideas. Now, we just did another live Zoom event as well with our Patreon and Acast Plus paid subscribers. We had co-hosts Adam Richard and Alice Fraser join us as well as some wonderful listeners subscribers. We had a great chat uh, live in real time where you get to ask questions. We shared stories. We did all the things. It was bloody beautiful. So we do those regularly as well as bonus episodes um, and some other stuff for paid subscribers. So it's only five bucks a month. Hopefully some of you will consider joining up because it helps me to keep the lights on. Now, last but not least, you know it, this is a sex dating and relationships podcast for adults. If you don't like swearing, it's really going to give you the shit. So off your fuck. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Dear Nelly, I could use some advice, dear Nelly. Yes, some help would be nice, dear Nelly. I'm eager to hear your point of view. Dear Nelly, there's a lot to explore, dear Nelly. When you're 40 or more, dear Nelly. So I'm hoping we can talk it through. Welcome to Dear Nelly, Sex, Relationships and Dating from the Other Side of 40. We are joined today by an actual professor. It is Professor Claire Wright. Hello, Claire. Hey, Nelly. How are you going? A professor. How fancy. I know. I'm actually technically a double professor because I hold two professorships. I'm professor of history and professor of public engagement at La Trobe University. So I'm a double professor. That's amazing. Now, do you mind if I start by asking how old you are? I am 54 years old, turning yeah. 55 in May this year. Yes. And you have been separated for how long? It is just coming up to a year now yeah. that uh, we have been um, physically separated. Uh, our decision to separate came earlier. Um, yeah. Probably 
nine months earlier than that, but because of our circumstances at the time, we were physically living in the same house um, mm. and hadn't told our kids and mm. we or really anybody else except for a couple of close friends and yeah. kind of living as if. Yeah, and this is a very long-term relationship. It is. We met when we were both 19 years old. First wow. Um, we married at 24. Yeah. And, you know, essentially separated at 54. So that's wow. a 30-year marriage, a 36-year relationship. Mm. It's fucking huge. It is huge. And I've, I've got to tell you, my brain is split in two because I want to talk to you, like I know you personally, I want to talk to you as a personal human. Yeah. And then the other part of my brain's like, she's a historian, yeah. right? So there is, you've got so much professional knowledge as well about the historical construction of marriage and, you know, the, the divorce and gender and all of those things. So let's try and do both if yeah, we can. Really- we can do both. I'm sure we can walk and chew gum because our brains are very large and multifaceted. And um, and and yeah, you're right. And a lot of and then and and in a way they're indivisible to me because a yes. lot of um, not necessarily the decisions, but some of the decisions and a lot of the context uh, mm. has been informed by a sort of historical long view. Yeah. And because it's not like I'm a historian of um, ancient African civilizations, mm. I'm a historian of 19th and 20th century Australian history and in particular gender relations. Yeah. And in particular power relations, which is what mm. gender relations are, and women's mm. political activism. Mm. And so these are all issues that I have thought about on an intellectual sphere for decades. Yes. And one of the incredibly complicated things for me, in a sense, has been integrating my two halves or, or two selves, mm. the, the intellectual academic yeah. part of me, which is also in a way the public part of me. And yeah. then the, you know, the personal psychological private part of me that in many ways have lived out of step. Yeah, other for a very long time. Yeah, so in in the parlance of this podcast, that first year I refer to it as sitting in the shit, right? Yeah. And you and I have had discussions, you know, personally about that, about how you need to, which I think is very hard for an intellectual, if I'm frank, mm-hmm. how you need to sit in your feelings, in your body, Yes, you can intellectualise and you can think through what's happening, but there's a real danger if you stay just in the brain. You actually need to feel um, what's happening. And regardless of whether you're happy about the divorce or separation, there will still be some grief and there'll be turmoil and there'll be difficulty. So how have you gone? Have you been able to do both or did you sit in your head for a bit? Are you oscillating? How's it gone? Well, I'm, I, I count myself as very fortunate, Nelly, in that you gave me that piece of advice really early on after the separation because, um, you know, grief is the word, uh, mm. massive period of grieving, mourning, mm. huge loss. Yeah. Even if it was for the right reasons. 
Mm. Um, even if I know why we got to that point in mm. the end. Um, and I don't know why I have a need to say this, but I'm just going to say this straight up. I mean, I don't think that we need to talk about why the marriage ended particularly. Um, mm. There's a million reasons why a marriage, a 36-year relationship ends. Mm. The one thing I want to say is the reason it didn't end was because of infidelity. I think yeah. a lot of people in, immediately go to that point of they do somebody really fucked up here. Yes, um, and that was not that was not part of the equation. Yeah, no, but- I'm actually glad you clarified that because I think when a relationship ends that has been that long, people want a very black and white answer. Right, yeah. so she cheated, he cheated, they did this, this, something happened. Honestly, Claire, in my case, I've had this multiple times, even though I've, you know, I came out as some version of queer at 19 because I had a long-term relationship with a man. I've multiple people like, oh, you ended it because you're a lesbian. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. no, <laughs> like you want, clear, you want a clear answer and yeah. I'm not giving it to you and you're uncomfortable. That's right. And I also think that um, despite all of the gains of the the women's movement and the and so here we here we're morphing into my yes. um but despite all of the gains of the last hundred years, thousand years of in, in women's rights, I think one of the final frontiers of feminism is that it's actually still culturally really difficult for a woman to leave a marriage if her husband is not unfaithful yes. or hasn't got bruises on her face. Correct. And I mean, so- literally, can't you hear there are multiple people, whether they say it out loud or not, who go, but why? Yeah. Like why? Like why? If it was all right for three decades, like yeah. then why did you go? And my response to that is always you're allowed to go at any time for any reason. Yeah. Isn't that what we fought for? Yeah. And, um, and I'll, I'll come back to that about what we fought for maybe um, in a minute, but I don't want to lose the train of your original question, which was about sitting in the shit. Mm. And so what I was saying is that you were really important to me early on because you gave me that advice. You said in a moment when I reached out via text to go, oh, is it supposed to hurt this much? Yeah. And you said, yeah, babe, and yep. you got to sit in the shit. Mm. You actually gave me another piece of advice, and um, and these have been my two mantras, really, Nelly, over the past twelve months: sit mm. in the shit and keep it classy. Yes, and yeah, really important parameters and rules mm. to live by. Um, mm. And both of them are very difficult at times. Oh, going, they are. They are back, very, very, very challenging. Can we start with sitting in the shit, and then we'll go to keeping it classy? So sitting, sitting in the shit. Sitting in the shit for that for me, and it's interesting that you've described that as um, as having to feel your feelings. Yeah. Because um, I interpreted it slightly differently when you said it to me. Uh, I think what I heard was as much as your rational, argumentative, social justice, um, principal brain is going to want to continue to kind of play out the narratives or the dialogue of a kind of court case where you're prosecuting your position and 
that you're going to come out right in yep. some way um yeah. and and that even when you feel like you are the one who's on trial, and I think that I have in my own mind felt like I was the one who was on trial mm. and therefore had to find really watertight arguments mm. as to why I should be found not guilty. Yeah. And the thing for me had that was really difficult in those, you know, and, that, and that's part of what was going on in the last years of the marriage for me. Mm. Um, but what was really difficult for me to switch off was to say, this is not a trial. Mm. Um, I'm I'm not being tried for anything. Mm. And this is not actually about my brain finding loopholes. Yeah. This is about my body feeling the need to, whether I'm right or wrong or any of it, just have to deal with the situation that I'm in, which sometimes is going to include being misunderstood, yeah. um, which yeah. is going to be not um, being seen in a good light. Mm. And and that, that to me was what sitting in the shit meant. Yeah. And, and for me, I actually, I don't think I realised this was part of the process at the beginning. It only came to me somewhere along the last 12 months journey, maybe by about six months, was realising that part of the process was actually coming back into my body. Yes. I think that I had been dissociated for at least the last four years of the marriage. And there's mm. a particular moment at which I think the schism happened. I can I can trace it to something. Mm. Um in which I, I I literally dissociated from mm. the situation and it only was once I was kind of safely in the walls of my new apartment and sitting in the shit and, mm. and processing and dealing that I realised that I had actually one of the things that had been part of that healing was that I had come back into my body. Yeah, and that's so critical because I think lots of our callers and I've admitted this myself and I think you're probably the same I have misread in the past dissociation as calmness mm -hmm. right yep. so because I'm a coper and yep. I'm like yep get on with it and do this and do I'm fine yep. I'm fine I'm fine and then yep. you go oh looking in retrospect it's like oh I'd tapped out yeah yeah that's you right. know because it's so it's yeah, yeah, you just find ways, uh, you know, what I realised that I had been doing for really those last years was kind of hitting my mark. Yeah. You know, the choreography was all there. Yeah. And I knew when to move stage right and when to move stage left and yeah. when to step on that X and yeah. when the lights were going to come up and when the lights were going to go down. And so Encore. I yeah, that's right. Yeah, and, right. You know, and, and when to, you know, bring the audience to their feet and yeah. to, and I knew my lines and yeah. and it was like I had performed 9,000 seasons of Cats. Yeah. And I yeah. was still doing that. But I and was, Mama's tired. But I was watching myself from... From the upper boxes. Yeah, exactly. Myself on stage from the upper boxes going through the motions effectively. And um, obviously that's no good for yourself. Mm. 
But it's no good for the people around you either. either. No, I totally no, agree. And I'm only starting to realise the impact that had on my kids who I thought because, you know, I'm a coper and I had a smile on my face and that, mm. you know, no, nobody's getting hurt by any of this. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm doing the right thing. Yeah. And, and it's taken me a long time, and this is part of sitting in the shit, to actually realise the effect that it has on other people, and not just my kids, my friends. Mm. Uh, I've found myself making apologies to friends for the ways that I haven't been there, mm. uh, that I haven't I haven't connected um, with them for years, mm. and really connected, you know, um, yeah. beyond beyond the the instrumental nature of maintaining friendships. Mm. And that comes with a deal of shame, but also mm. um, I think the thing that I've most tried to learn and practice this past year has been self-compassion. I was going to say, I mean, I think <laughs> you have to on some level, yes, repair is essential, but you also have to give yourself a bit of grace because these things are massive and 36 years is no joke. And that year... You know, being only a year out, uh, my experience, and I'm interested if it's yours as well, is that that first year you're not just dealing with your grief, you're actually dealing with the grief of everybody around you and they bring their own stuff to the table. So mm -hmm. even friends, um, let alone family and your kids and all that kind of stuff, if they have any issues in their relationship, if they were invested in you as a couple, it, whatever it is, cultural overlays, there's a whole range of things and a lot of people aren't even aware of that because it's so ingrained and they're just feeling big feelings, not recognising that those feelings are about them. Yeah, yeah. And you're managing that as well as yeah. your own grief. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that was definitely part of it. I mean, I, I, think, I think really the only people I've cared about in the last... 12 months have been my kids. Yeah. And I've, uh, and, and part of my, um, the process that I've been through is actually saying some of those other people in the orbit, mm. other family members, extended family members, mm. um, they're just going to have to be grown ups about this and look after yeah. themselves. And I Correct. can't take responsibility for that. I'm, no. I'm, I'm a, one of those many breasted mothers that feeds many, many, many mm. people mm. and my I'm a tiny little person but my wingspan is large yes and yes it is it snuggles in there yeah and there have had to be moments where I've just had to say I I have to close those wings in around myself and hold yeah. myself I yeah you do my kids and yeah. I, I should say my kids are uh this year turned 27 25 and 19 mm. so um, they're obviously they'll always be my kids, but for mm. sake of listeners, they're not little kids. They're, yeah, they're, they're adults. Adults themselves, and they have adult decisions to be to make about mm. the way they are going to relate to this enormous, enormously traumatic rupture in their lives, mm. and something that I would have really always sworn, and I did for many years, fight heaven and earth to make sure this was an experience they had to go through. Yeah. Um, you know, my parents split up when I was three. Uh, I have 
a, a lot of associated trauma from my childhood, which is not just a fact of the divorce, but the way that it it played out in a whole range of contexts around that, the sort of childhood I had. Um, but, you know, it was really very much part of my life goal. Mm. I would provide a stable, secure mm. base of family and home for my kids for fucking ever. But you know what, Claire? You have. Hmm. Like it looks different. It looks the different. The out on that one, Nelly. <laughs> uh, I, I reckon you, I think there's a, you know, I mean, I'm so conscious of my overuse of therapy speak, but I do think there's there's something to reframe there because you are a stable presence in their life. You have been and continue to be a fabulous mother. You don't live in the same house with their father anymore. That doesn't mean you vanished. It doesn't mean you became, you, you didn't fuck off and say, you know, I'm going to join the circus. You're still there. And in fact, you're sitting in the shit with them while you're processing your own stuff. I think there's there is something about also teaching them how to do life, right? We don't know what's going to happen in life, whether it's divorce, uh, you know, job changes, illness, a whole range of things. How do you cope with this with grace? Yeah. How do you do how do you keep it classy? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And and you know, we all in in including um we're not divorced. I don't know what I guess he's my ex. I haven't really yeah. found a label yeah. um, for him yet. Um it, it, we have all I think kept it classy mm. at least at least in uh, on the surface and in a way that allows us to all be together in the same room, which we we have. We just mm. celebrated my daughter's 19th birthday. We all went out for dinner mm. and pizza and prosecco. And um, and it's not without its challenges. Mm. Christmas, Christmas was challenging, um, but we did manage to all get together on Christmas morning um, at our family home, mm. uh, as we have for every year of the kids' yeah. Babies, toddlers, little children, teenagers, blah. Um, we did that and it was painful and it was joyous and mm. and all the things. And I think what we're both trying to do is to set out a culture whereby we can still be a family. I refuse mm. to buy into the language that this was a failed marriage or we were a broken family. Agreed. I don't think anything that lasts for 35 years is failed. No. Correct. And I don't think I think we're a family in the process of transforming into a different configuration. Mm. And I suppose if anything, my child has childhood has shown me is that families can come in lots of shapes and form. Yeah. Effectively, have five parents, yeah. and um, yeah. and they have all been pretty fucking classy about yeah. about how they've dealt with life and dealt with me. Mm. There is a, a, a the thing that binds us all together is love. Yeah, and and binds us as a family. And I think that we will, and my nuclear family, my family of making, yeah. um, family of origin, will continue to find intelligent, compassionate ways of using the love we have for each other. Mm. You know, and I might just sound so Pollyanna. You know, no, you I don't. I don't think you do at all because I can feel how much pain there is in all of that and particularly when you're only 12 months out 
And I think, you know, I got amazing advice early on. So, you know, when you separated, you contacted me. Me, my version of that is I contacted my friend Steve Allen, who's a psychiatrist and, you know, broadcaster, and I was talking to him. That was my fear is the kids, the kids, the kids. And he'd been separated. And he said, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said, I never promised my child a perfect life. I promised I'd be there regardless. Yeah. And yeah. that actually, that really landed with me. I would yeah. also say, if you're anything like me, there'd also been Christmases when you were together that weren't um, great. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah. you know, we forget those ones. We go to the... True. We go to the first one, we go, oh, it's all tense because we're separating. Like, well, it was tense last year and we weren't separated. So we can kind of gloss over the difficulty of staying in something that's not working yeah, and the impact of that on everybody. And, you know, and something you just said about uh, I came to you for advice early and you went to, to Steve, I, I will say that pretty much the only reason I'm doing this podcast with you today, Nelly, is not only because I love you, but because... Listening to other people's stories through pops was yeah. the thing that helped me in yeah. those hard years, um, yeah. in the hard years of making the decision, in the hard yeah. years of when we were actively trying to save what mm. I had identified as being mm. problems. Um, yeah. We were actually actively trying to address things that I finally had found the courage after 30 years mm. to identify as being problems in the marriage and mm. with the our relationship dynamic. Mm. Uh, and I think it's really important to acknowledge that it is a dynamic. Yes. Particularly when you've been together for so long, it's mm. not like one person is doing something to the other person. Mm. It's mm. acknowledging that you have fallen into a dynamic and particularly a power dynamic that you have come to recognise as um, being um, dysfunctional, unsustainable, uh, damaging. Um, and intractable. And, in, and intractable and saying, it's it just dra dragging that big fat-ass elephant out into the middle of the room Yeah, and, and saying, there she is, and now what are we going to do to tame her? How, yeah. how, and how can we? And can we? And yeah. so it was over those four years before we got to the point where we both recognised that we couldn't, yeah. that that, um, and that and that we mutually came to that. Mm. Um, we mutually came to that decision was that we we couldn't, mm. um, and that our time together and our, our shared path in that sense was over. Mm. Um, but during those four years, podcasts really helped me find mm. a way of thinking contextually and, and feeling part of, mm, I don't want to say a community, that's a bit naff. Mm. But, you know, I remember particular episodes of particular podcasts and particular things that people said along the way that made a real difference yeah. to not only me giving me some comfort mm. but actually giving me some guidance. And I remember one thing, I, I will say that the podcast that probably helped me the most was the We Can Do Hard Things podcast yeah. that yeah. Glennon Doyle does yeah. with um, Abby Wambach and her, yeah. and her sister. Um, funnily enough, I haven't listened to it once in the last 12 months. Yeah. It was like 
in my ears constantly yeah. Yeah. for years and I, and I have not listened to it once. I can't, I just don't. Well, you needed it. There was a certain point in time and that you needed it and then you didn't need it. And there was one episode in which I'm pretty sure it was Martha Beck who I also ended up listening to her podcast with Rowan Mangan called Rewilding. Um, no, Bewildment, Bewildment, something like that anyway. Yeah. Um, but Martha Beck also became an important figure to me and she said something in one of the episodes which is this. She said, it's the gap between the knowing and the doing where the pain resides. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So firstly that you break that down and you go, oh, the knowing, mm. the knowing, the knowing, the mm. knowing what you need to do mm. and the, and in a sense the, the knowing of the inevitability. Yes, it's coming. But then the yeah. doing. Yes. The, well, what do you do about the knowing? Yes. How do you make... How do you bring the knowing out from the deep recesses of your gut yeah. or heart? Are you ready? Um, how do you bring that into the light and make it mm. concrete and real? And mm. that's where the fear comes. Mm. And mm. do not underestimate the fear. Mm. Uh, it's mm. terrifying. There's mm. no, never done anything more terrifying than bring that knowing into the light. Yeah. And... And then how do you make it concrete and real and follow through with it? What lies on the other side of that precipice? Oh, but I mean, there's so many things, but two things. One, I think when, particularly for people listening who are in a, a relatively recent breakup and who are dealing with the expectations, the weight of expectations of others, one of the things I always say is not in that language, but there is probably a gap in the knowing and the doing for them and you bringing the knowing into the light and the doing is terrifying. Your literal presence, even if you're not talking about separation, divorce, relationships, mm -hmm. just sitting at the mm -hmm. table, you are a symbol of you are the elephant, right? So yeah. that's their shit. It is not your shit. And I've seen that and I've seen Same. it. Same. I've experienced it. And I've, I've seen it and I now can. It's like you have a different radar. Yeah. Because, like, you know, I've run into women who I've known who are not close friends um, but, you know, I've known in a professional context or whatever. Um, I literally ran into one woman at an airport. Mm. Um, she was running for a plane and I was in the waiting lounge and we had, like, a very quick catch-up and... I told her my news. It had only been um, very, re I think it had only been separated for like two months. Mm. And her eyes widened. She suddenly looked like a rabbit caught in the headlights. Yeah. And she said, how did you do it? Yeah. What did you I, say? In that, in that moment, yes. yeah. in that moment, I thought, oh, fuck, you're in the same boat. Yeah, you are. Yeah. And I and I never would have thought it from her life from the outside, but we never know anything from the well, outside. And I wouldn't have thought it of yours and you wouldn't have thought it of mine. I mean, that's yeah. that's the whole point. Yeah. Can I, taking that, because um, I love that framing of it from the knowing to the doing, mm -hmm. I also think what I hear and to some extent what I've experienced in some relationships is that that can also be the breaking point. So we talk about, um, oh, well, someone must have cheated or someone was abusive or someone was whatever. We're looking for a thing. For me, and I've experienced this a few times, 
It is the gap between what I've told you I need. So mm. you know, mm. you know, there's no, we, I haven't hidden it. I've worked hard. I've come to the point where I know what I need. Are you doing it? Mm. If you're not going to do it or attempt to do it, or I'm not going to attempt to do it for you, to me, that's when you go, we, we, we need to part with grace now. Because mm-hmm. what I need matters. Yeah. And historically, you know, you know, you're the historian. We have been trained as women not to need anything. And yeah. it's really hard to face that. I think, I mean, this is a whole other discussion I want to get you back on. But as a feminist, it's really hard to face that you have erased your own needs. Okay. I want to, there's two point places that I want to jump off there. I, I think one of the very difficult parts in all that is actually identifying what your needs are. 100%. I think that when you are um, raised as a woman and raised as a daughter, and then you might add into that some idiosyncratic parts of your own personal history. Mm. Child, you know, I was one of those, here's some therapy speak for you. I was a parentalised child. Yes. So I mothered my mother yeah. um, in a very codependent relationship. Yeah. Um, I also mothered my half-sister who is 11 years younger than mm. me. Mm. Uh, then I mothered my own children. And as I said before, there's lots of others kind of nesting in mm. wings. And then in some ways I've always taken responsibility for all of my parents uh, mm. because there, haven't, there hasn't been a raft of siblings to spread things around. Yeah. I think that when you have been raised in that culture and in those personal circumstances, you don't know what your needs are because... No. Basically, your fundamental survival need is I just need everybody to be happy. Yes, exactly. As long as everybody else is happy, then I'm safe. Yeah, that's um, right. And and so, you know, if you put it down to evolutionist terms or Maslow terms or, mm. you know, in mm. terms of the hierarchy of needs, if if safety and survival are the basis of that, mm have learnt from a very young age that I am safe if everybody around me is happy and right. in particular they're happy with me. Yeah, that's exactly and, right. And and then, you know, you add 25 years of, of raising your own babies um, on, on top of that, which is mm. also very basic things like somebody's crying, they need something, mm. I need to give it to them. Mm. Um, then you, you come out at 50 and 50 was a massive turning point for me. Mm. You come out at 50 and you say, I have not got a single clue what my needs might be above and beyond keeping everybody happy. Yeah. And so you're defined unconsciously or sometimes consciously, you're defined in relation to. And if you are a parentified child, you don't have needs because having needs is, is, uh, is unsafe. Yeah. Right? It's dangerous and your nervous system is geared to like make everything better and we call that people pleasing we call you know there's a whole range of things that we call it but it it's not only it's not specific to women but it is very common very yeah. common in in women and particularly of our age yeah and yeah. you can turn around at our age and think i'm an intelligent person who has read books and listened to podcasts and watched movies and had discussions and i don't know who i am yeah. let alone what I want. Okay. 
So that's interestingly, I don't know who I am. I, th- I think in the end, I decided I knew who I didn't, I didn't, I knew who I didn't want to be. Yes. And that's and a starting I, point. I knew who I didn't want to be. And I could see that the decision to stay in the marriage would have been a journey towards being someone I didn't want to be. Yes. Yes. Um, the interesting thing was that after I moved 900 meters down the road from our family home into an apartment, the overwhelming feeling that I had in the next few weeks, months, apart from grief and loss and, and absolute sheer anxiety, I woke up with a panic attack every morning, mm. was I've come home to myself. Yeah. And I did know who I was mm. after all. How lovely. I, I actually, she was buried in there somewhere. Of course she is. And so that feeling yeah. of who I am, I wouldn't have articulated it that that way. But there I was, faced mm. with faced with waking up in a house on my own for mm. the first time since I was nineteen years old, because mm. I'd lived in share houses from that point before we had um, my partner and I had started to live together. So it was the first time I'd lived alone since I was nineteen. Mm. And um, it was the first time also my, I had all three children were had finished school by then. So my daughter had, we'd stayed together for the last year my daughter was in school. So mm. she'd finished school. So I had all three children out. So it was the first time in two decades I didn't have mm. children in school. Mm. And you know what, you realise that you just know what you've got to do. you got to get up. you got to make mm. the lunches. you got to, even up when you pass mm. lunch stage, you've got to make sure somebody's on time for the tram to get to the year 12. Mm. Mm. and like you're just like chop 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 and you can oh i tell you what the best way to avoid that that elephant is is uh busyness yeah right keep going keep going necessity all of those things so to actually wake up and not know that (laughs) you know um I thought after maybe about six months, I thought this. You know how Elizabeth Gilbert famously wrote a memoir about the first. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. After her separation, mm. called "Eat, Pray, Love." Yeah. Um, but I thought if I were to write a memoir, which I'm not going to do, about my post-separation time, it would be called "Burn, Spill, Lose." Yeah. <laughs> literally. Yeah. Literally, I would put on some apples to poach. Yeah. And then half an hour later, start sniffing the air, going, "Yeah, what something's is burning." Smell. What a metaphor. And I would suddenly yeah. tip like a gesture towards something and tip a teacup off a table yeah. and it would spill all over the floor. And the number of mm. things that I left on a tram yeah. or, uh, you know, yeah. dropped somewhere that, and, and just lost. It's like it is just like all where I was in time and space, mm. I had lost, lost all it. ballast. Yeah, like, and you, you completely where I was in time and space. Completely dysregulated, and that is. And I remember talking to you at that time when you were in some of those moments and, and spiraling, and kind of trying to normalize it. Mm-hmm. It's not about smart and and not smart, and mm-hmm. it's not about competent and incompetent. And all that. It's the reality 
of a seismic shift in your life, your nervous system, your heart, your head, all of those things. And just coming back to, just for listeners, mm-hmm. I want to come back to something you said about, you know, I knew who I didn't want to be mm-hmm. and just really honour that because there'll be people listening going, oh, I don't know who I am either. That's okay. Like you can't, you can't skip the steps. You can't go from I want to leave and now I know who I am and I know what I want and then da, da, da. Don't put so much pressure on yourself. Sit down and kind of go, it's enough at this point to mm. know what I don't want mm. and I will work the rest out over time. Mm. In the end, I felt like the decision, um, and and I said earlier that it was mute, we had made a mutual decision to separate, um, and we had, and that nine months that we stayed together under the same roof, sleeping in the same bed, um, before we told the kids because we didn't want to disrupt our daughter's year twelve. By the end of that period of time, he was a bit more like. Are you sure this is what we're going to do? Is this really what? Is this really what you want? Um, the reality came looming. Yeah, when it was getting closer to telling them, and that—that's why I felt in the end that that had been sort of positioned as my decision. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and that I was the one that had a decision to make. In a sense, he would have been happy to remain unhappily married, and I yeah. wasn't. Yeah, uh, and and to me, in the end, I feel like the decision that I had to make in that circumstance mm. was between heartbreaking and soul destroying. Yeah, and look, we all know the 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 narratives of various people in our lives, including the person you broke up with, let alone everyone else, um, will vary depending on their needs. Right, so it might be easy to go. Well, Claire left rather than kind of going, uh, well, these are the things that led up to it and there's a certain point at which you have to just accept that you can't control that. And over time, like I think particularly in relation to your children, over time they will have a different perspective. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I'm I'm going to be utterly um, frank and uh, for the record because I am an historian so yeah. I do. I do like to be truthful and have evidence yeah. there on the table. When we told the kids, we positioned it as a mutual decision. Yeah. We we had a mutually approved script as to how it was going to happen and mm. how we were going to tell the kids. And we told the kids it was a mutual decision. Mm. That's classy. The next day I woke up in a complete panic and realised that I needed to own my own truth. Ah. And okay. that if, if this was going to mean anything, if all this heartbreak, if all this damage, if all this trauma was going to mean something, it had to mean having more a more truthful relationship to myself yeah. and, and to the people around me. Mm. Um, and that what we had told them wasn't really the truth, that he had he had agreed to that narrative mm. and in many ways, you know, generously agreed to it um, to save me a skinful of guilt. Mm. And um, and so I gathered them back together and told them that Dad would stay in this marriage, mm. but I can't. 
And I felt like I had to cop whatever the consequences of that were. And that this is a pointed question, but I'm going to ask it and we can take it out if you don't like it. Were you trying to punish yourself? I don't think I was trying to punish myself. Um, I am very masochistic, so that is a that is a possibility. <laughs> um, but I don't think I was no. And in many ways, in many times, I've actually gone back and just tried to work out whether I did the right thing. In didn't want the facade. It sounds like then I didn't want there to be any more bullshit yeah great I could not live with any more I could not live with any Mm. more bullshit that for Mm. me part of owning my truth was that I just had to be I just had to play life straight Mm. I had to Mm. play life straighter than it had been in Mm. order it had felt for a long time and And also let's be clear they are adult children right we sometimes we're having this discussion about people with children who are under 10, for example, or even, you know, young teenagers. You totally can't, different story. Different story. You're there going, we need to have a relationship as adults. Yeah. I'm still your mum, but we are all adults. You've had enough of the bullshit. Let's rebuild and um, navigate this together truthfully. I was walking down the street one night um with a you know a sense of newfound autonomy um, and independence um, and strength, and and I and I thought to myself, I'm honestly living my best life. Mm. And then I thought, mm, no, you know what? I'm living my life honestly. Yes. And- yes. And are they the same thing to me? They are. Right, it's not about like bells and whistles, and I've got more of this, and I've got data. It's not about that. It's about are you fully integrated as a person, and you can face a lot of shit if you are fully integrated. Trying to keep all the plates spinning in the air is what unravels us. And and part of I realized that part of that living my life honestly meant also that I spent a lot of time also feeling pain. Yeah, exactly. And it that's hurts. Part of living honestly as well. So yep. what I mean by living your best life makes it sound like your life is suddenly the Coke commercial that you thought yeah. you know, what it could be and the sun's yeah. always shining and you're yeah. you're in a you're, tampon ad. Yeah, you know, it's <laughs> glaring white around no, you. No, it's hard. But actually part of living your life honestly is also recognizing that 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 it's hard and you live with mm. complicated, conflicted emotions. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I, I feel like, you know, there, for that whole first six months I woke up every morning wondering whether I'd done the right thing. Yeah, of course. Every night I went to bed realising that I had. Mm. And, but I also thought, am I going to ask myself this question every day for the rest of my life? Yeah. And I realised in the second six months, no, I wasn't going to ask myself that question every day for the rest of my life, but I probably will every day for my, the rest of my life wish that it hadn't had to be this way. Yeah, look, it's it, this is a weird analogy, but maybe it's not. I'm going to keep popping into my head, so I'm going to say it. The idea for a lot of people, and this is still the case in 2024, the idea of coming out is terrifying for a range of people and particularly in a range of communities and situations. The damage 
of being in the closet is also very real. That doesn't mean when they come out, they're going to be skipping down the street and their family will love them and everyone will be supportive and there'll be no consequences at work and everyone will, you know, that's just not reality. Will they feel better? On balance, I would say I've never seen anyone in the closet who's happy. It's so, it's so interesting that you would raise that as an analogy because there's a direct connection in my life with right. that because I had um, a colleague around the time that I turned 50, this colleague of mine came out mm. as trans mm. and I followed their transition journey closely mm. um, as a colleague and increasingly as a friend. Mm. And I realised at some point watching them over really kind of the next year of their life uh, at looking at how courageous they had been yeah, and how much skin it had cost them and yet at the same time watching them inhabit awesome. their skin. Yeah. In, a, in a way that felt so real and yes. so, um, you know, new formed like that butterfly just mm. wriggling its way out of the chrysalis. Yeah. Um, but I watched that process, you know, from very close quarters with them and then I realised that I needed to come out too and that's how oh. I realised it. I realised I needed to come out too and what I needed to come out was as as unhappy oh god that's like honestly that's given me goosebumps because i think it's we all get that inspiration from different places but i know exactly what you're talking about and you i've seen this over decades the difference that i see in someone like you you know a friend who you know you think oh everything's fine but you can kind of sense something isn't fine and then make this call and you've got to sit in the shit and it's really painful. And then something emerges where you go, oh my God, like you look younger, you look brighter, you look like all of the thing. And I don't mean in a superficial sense. I mean, in a, like at some kind of light, you know, kind of coming within and a lightness. And I see the same thing with um, friends, colleagues, acquaintances, whoever, who have gone on that coming out journey. And that does not mean, like, if we continue the analogy, the butterfly is still vulnerable. Yeah. Right? It doesn't mean that there's no pain and no consequence, but it's much, much better than in the dark place. It is. And and the thing is that once you've come out, no matter what you've come out as, even if mm. I've come out as unhappy, then you have to deal with the fact that, as we said earlier, that that's now out in the light and what are you yeah. going to do? about it and mm. um and and one of the this is this I want to bring this back to my professional life mm. one of the things that I struggled with at the time was but but who am I to do this to make other people happy in or sorry to how am I going to make other people unhappy in order to make myself happier mm. Um, mm. and how am I going to how am I going to reconcile that with the person who I think that I am, which yes. is kind and generous and yes. loving and and do no harm sort yes. of a person, and yes, you know, which is different from dif- different from the nervous system response. I'm definitely a fawner on the four F scale. I yeah. definitely yeah. go straight to fawn when the tab- saber tooth tiger is coming yes. towards me. 
I'm the one that goes, oh, here, kitty, kitty. Yeah, yeah, it's all right. It's all right. Come here. And can I pick you up on something? Because Uh, I will forget if I don't. Do no harm. You're harming yourself. Yeah. Yes, but do no harm to others. Uh Aha, different. Do no harm to others. And I struggled with that enormously. Of course. How do I do harm to others in order not to self-harm? And I have all sorts of self-harm kind of tendencies, um, including I've been a trichotillomaniac since I was 11, which means for people who don't know the actual label that you pull your hair out. um, It's sort of on the OCD spectrum. It goes with other things like skin picking. um, And uh, there's actually a fantastic memoir that's just been released um, by a woman called Adele Dumont. It's called Pulling. And I've never read a book that has put to words what I have, the experience I've lived with for over 40 years now. Um, I... So self-harm is definitely something that I um, I excel in, um, but it was like how do I, how am I going to do harm to others um, in the process of trying to work out how to be less unhappy? Mm. And one of the things, one of the consolations that I use, and I don't know whether this is intellectual cons- consolation um, or not, but one of the things that I thought was I know through my research and, um, and you know, knowledge about the way that things were in the past. Mm. That women, in, women have been unable mm. to make the transition mm. from unhappy to happier mm. situations in relationship to marriage mm. for centuries yeah. because they, they, ha- they have not had the economic cultural, social, or legal, or legal mm. avenues to do so. Mm. So women just had to sit in a different kind of shit yes. for their whole fucking lives, whether yeah. they wanted to or not. Harmful. And I thought, here I am, and, mm. and women have fought for decades and centuries mm. for the right to not have to sit in that shit. Yeah for the right to have the legal, social, cultural, political and economic Mm. power Mm. to be able to have some agency and control over their own lives. Mm. Mm. And I've documented that struggle in my my books. Yes. I thought here I am, a woman who has benefited from the struggle of the sisters who have come before. Mm. I have the economic independence. Mm. I have the legal capacity. Mm. Mm. I have, I'm in a political moment that in and and in some ways is actually encouraging of, you know, being your best self and mm. and you know in a raising your voice and autonomy autonomy. Um, you know, there's a lot of language around, um, you mm. know, there's no such thing as one way liberation mm. and like, you, when mm. no one is free until all of us are free. And so I mean, take it. Slogans that have been part of the feminist um, yeah. movement for, uh, for a while now. But um, if, if I have this capacity, mm. I, and I do not do this. Yeah. I do not follow three. What does that say about any no. other woman who is has less capacity than I do. I'm yeah. in 
enormously privileged. Yeah. His- historically speaking, and mm. even in my own, in our own context now. I mean, there mm. are women, obviously, still to this day, who don't have the economic mm. or social capacity mm. to leave unhappy, destructive, harmful situations, mm. mm. um, even if they have the legal. Mm. And political means. Yeah, but but you so, do. And two but I things didn't. you did, right? You did it. And you still remain, and I think this is really important in this conversation. You still remain kind. You still remain considerate. You still remain loving. You're still the mama bear. Your arms are still wide open. You still deal you haven't fled. And I think it's really important for listeners to consider that because I notice, and I've done exactly the same thing, I notice in your language, I notice in Caller's language, in my own, I did this is a big weight of responsibility rather Mm. than this happened for a range of reasons. Mm. Mm. Right? That doesn't take away your character. You're dealing with this situation with the same grace and the same toolkit that you have dealt with the rest of your life, you're mm. still, I mean, let's be basic, you're still a good person. You're still a good mum. Thanks, Nellie. You know, the funny thing is that I've always um, wondered whether I'm a good person. It's probably the central question of my life. Well, um, I was, you know, in year 12, year 12 English exam, um, gentle boast here, I got 100% for my year 12 English. Oh, hello. And I remember only one of the questions that was given to us in that exam. It was the it was the creative writing piece that mm. you had to respond to a prompt, and the prompt was, "We can't insure you for a journey like that." Mm. And I wrote a piece about coming home from school one day and saying to my parents, my mother and my stepfather, "Am I a good person?" Mm. And they said well, what do you think? Mm. And I said, I don't know, but I think I have to find out. And I'm going into my room and I'm going to spend the weekend in there trying to figure out whether I'm a good person. Mm. And can you can you give me some assurance that mm. I will come out of this? And they said, we can't insure you for a journey like that. Oh, now, so that's, oh, Claire. So that's Claire at fucking 17. 17. Right. Yeah. And I reckon I only came up with an answer to that, Nelly, this year. Well, and what's the answer? Yeah, I'm a good person. Of course, you are a good person. You know who doesn't ask that question? A shit person. <laughs> a bad person. It's like that classic thing. If you go to a therapist and you say, Am I a narcissist? And they're like, Well, a narcissist would never ask that. You would never turn up at a therapist's office. Like, of course, and of course, you're not like routine, you're not like 100% good. None of us are. But are you striving every day to be a good person and bring, even just through your work, let alone seeing your mothering and how you are as a friend and all that kind of stuff, even just through your work, you bring goodness to the world. Like, the only people, the people who doubt that the most, I think, are the good people. That is the great tragedy of that. Like that's a kind of existential dilemma about personhood, mm. I think. And we keep striving, but of course the answer is yes, Claire. Oh, darling. Mm. 
really interested to know a very simple but pointed thing. Okay. Do you still believe in love? Oh, my God, yes. Oh, tell me. I so believe in love. But you know what I believe in now? I just believe in all the loves. Yeah. I believe in all the loves. Tell me. I, I, um, I read a, a book recently, Christos Chalkis's latest novel, The In-Between. Oh, it's so good. And it is such a good book. I think it is his best book. And I and, yeah. and I adored that book. And the thing is, that book is about love. Yeah. You know, there's all the hot and heavy sex in it. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And it, you know, it's raw and it's gritty and all the and all, all the things. But actually, that book is about love and connection. I agree. All the ways in which love can be felt and expressed, yeah. and all many shapes and forms that it it can. Yeah be found in yeah um, and and that just gives me absolute ultimate hope and optimism mm. and um and that you know you can you can get loving in a lot of places and oh you, you can really find, can and you can find love with people that you would not necessarily mm. have thought that you could and you mm. can give love to people that you wouldn't necessarily have yes. that you could and you know Nelly it's a bit like you know when you have your second child, okay, mm, pregnant mm. with your second child and you think you have anxiety because you think, how am I ever going to be able to love this child as much yeah. as I love the first one? Yep. And then that baby is born and you realise that it doesn't take any love away from the first mm. one. Just you expands. Just grew, you just grew a whole new love limb. Correct. Correct. The heart expands, the abundance mentality. I mean, even going back to something you said earlier about, friendships like I really notice friends have always been very important to me and I know they have been to you as well but I did notice once I became separated um that part of my life became bigger it was already big but it expanded because that love that I had in my chest needed somewhere to go and it came back to me and it grew and it's still growing and even if it wasn't romantic love like oh, the absolutely. love that's there is is absolutely. I don't know it's a it's an infinite resource. It's an infinite resource, and yeah, you know, to, to to draw a couple of the points that we've been discussing together, and the way that when you do um, end uh, a very long term marriage, and people really want to find a cause, they want mm. you know they want to be able to identify the cause, maybe so that as you said, they can avoid it, they can. Mm drive around that that um, pitfall. But something that came back to me from a number of channels was that people wondered whether I was having an affair with my trans friend. Oh, and oh, why? Because, and I discovered this later, is that one thing that my trans friend said that they think that we have is something that's called a queer platonic that we are queer platonic partners. Yeah, right. Yeah. So yeah. apparently if you Google queer platonic partners, oh, yeah, yeah. It's a thing. there'll be a whole literature on it. And it's hundred percent. I didn't know that it was a thing. Yeah. But yeah. there is, I know what they mean is that there's a certain intimacy yes. between us that is not sexual in yeah. in any way. Yeah. Um, and I think of it as a very close friendship. Yeah. But people did read it yes. somehow. As it being um, romantic, because maybe that's the only way that they could figure such a love. I think it's very, it's most common with gay men and straight women. 
what mm. we would have in, you know, the olden days called fag hags, mm. uh, which some gay men still use that term, some don't like it. Um, and that is often misread as romantic. And I think it's often misread as the woman has fallen in love with him rather than kind of going, no, they are both in love with each other. It's just not sexual. Mm. Like they may even be, you know, each other's person, soulmates, whatever you want to call it, twin flames, all the things. There doesn't have to be sex for it to be real love. Exactly. And I think I think the thing that mostly I'm done with, Nelly, um, in the end is labels. Yeah, me too. Uh, what, what oh, I, what girl. That I realised at the end of our uh, at my marriage is that is that I fundamentally wanted to de-wife. Yeah. In a way, I don't care whether we ever divorce. That's a yes. that's that's a legal nicety. That's yeah. um, you know that has nothing to do with a property settlement. That has yeah. you know that's that's annulling a contract essentially. Yeah. Um, but I did realise that I wanted to de-wife um, because you wanted to be clear. Because the expectations that are put on you mm. with the label, yeah, um, both internally, yeah, uh, and externally, uh, are are ultimately very limiting. And I feel mm. this like I feel like if I were to enter another relationship, I I, I don't even really wouldn't even really want to call us a couple because mm. I think being a couple. Mm comes with a whole freighted set of baggage about what that means. Isn't uh, language slow, Claire? I mean, you're a historian, but, you know, I just find language so slow. I had to introduce, I'm seeing Linda, I had to introduce Linda the other day and I'm like, I don't want to say girlfriend, I don't want to say, like, I'm not 12, I don't want to say partner, that feels like we're, you know, running a law firm. And I was like, oh, this is my sweet pea. I was yeah. like, that's the only label I could like think yeah. of that felt kind of right. Yeah. Um, we need, I don't know, language has got to evolve in this area, I think. Yeah. Or, you know, we start making it up for ourselves. Yeah, I reckon we've got to. I'm going with sweet pea for now. I think you know what? You are a sweet pea. Oh, you God. are such a sweet <laughs> pea. Thank you so much for coming on. Will you come back on because I've got a trillion questions. Yeah, I will. I, I would really I, love it. I've enjoyed this conversation immensely, Nelly. Oh, Thank me you. too. And can you tell me, and I'll put links into the show notes, um, do you have anything to plug? I mean, you've got a trillion books. Do you want to plug any of them? Um, well, I guess the book that would have most relevance to the conversation that we've had today is You Daughters of Freedom, which is yes. about the Australian suffrage movement and most mm. particularly what Australian women did next after Australia became the first country in the world where women won full political equality, white women yep. the right to vote and to stand for parliament, and then what the way in which Australian women then became ambassadors for that gold standard of democracy around around the world. And that that is the book that most embraces that um, first wave of feminist ideas of what liberation for, me, for women might mean and how mm. to go about it. And I guess was the one that I had most in mind when I was thinking about what my responsibilities as a modern woman might be to, to that generation of mm. change makers. Well, lest us not forget for one second that those women, even in the most extreme of abusive and toxic relationships, could not leave. And I think that's an interesting place to start to reflect on whether or not you should step into your autonomy and make those decisions. Thank you so much, Professor Claire Wright. Uh, we will see you back for Sloppy Seconds. 
Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Claire. Bye. Dear Nelly, I could use some advice, dear Nelly. Yes, some help would be nice, dear Nelly. I'm eager to hear your point of view, dear Nelly. There's a lot to explore, dear Nelly. When you're 40 or more, dear Nelly. So I'm hoping we can talk it through. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, thanks so much for listening to Dear Nelly. Now, don't be shy. I would love to hear your questions and comments. To send me a recording or an email, go to nellythomas.com and follow the links. It's super easy. And you might hear me talk about your question in a future episode. Huge thanks to producer Sam Peterson from the Producer Boy Creative Production team and to producer Faye Younger, who in addition to being an excellent human, is also a brilliant real estate buyer's advocate and can be found at youngerhill.com. Thanks to ACAST and all the team. And lastly, to you. Without the listeners, I'm just a middle-aged mole talking shit to no one. Please rate, review and consider subscribing for five bucks a month for a bonus episode and to help me keep the lights on. And tell your bloody mates, would you? I'd really appreciate it. Love yous.